Life can, under normalish circumstances, be challenging in many different ways. It can be tricky to navigate, it can leave you feeling like you're not doing it right, and we can get so lost in paddling furiously that we don't get to acknowledge the progress we make and the wins we should be celebrating along the way. Hello and welcome to a new episode of The Workplace Revolution with me, Sile Polani. Joining me for today's conversation is Dr. Tema Brian Davis. Dr. Tema is a licensed psychologist, ordained minister, author, and podcast host whose encouragement and affirmations on social media have allowed scores of people, myself included, to feel seen, safe, and hopeful. She is also a professor at Pepperdine University and is a past president of the Society for the Psychology of Women. Her contributions to psychological research, policy, and practice have been honored by the National and Regional Psychological Associations in the United States. Dr. Tema earned her doctorate from Duke University, completed her postdoctoral training at Harvard Medical Center, and is a past American Psychological Association representative to the United Nations. Dr. Tema, welcome to the Workplace Revolution. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. I am so excited. So I have spent years, I came across, I first discovered you on social media because everybody kept retweeting you. And I was just like, okay, (laughs) who is this person? (laughs) Because I loved what I was seeing. And to be able to finally have this conversation with you is absolutely amazing. Oh, thank you so much. I am so honored. And it's been one of the gifts of social media to be able to reach people far and wide. Absolutely. So would you tell us a little bit about your professional background and your journey? Uh, because I think when people when people start to hear about what your work actually is, they're going to be quite interested. Yes. Well, I uh, grew up as a pastor's daughter And in our community, uh, Black people in the United States are more likely to talk to their minister than to talk to their therapist. Mm. And so that's how I got introduced to the idea of, you know, what's called pastoral counseling. Mm. And uh, seeing my father and then later my mother went into ministry, uh, seeing them provide counseling for people. I always had a heart. Uh, for listening and bearing witness and trying to provide support and encouragement. And so as I got older and discovered that psychology and counseling are a profession in and of themselves. Mm. And so as soon as I learned about it, it is something that I was drawn to. So even before I started college, I knew it was what I wanted to pursue. And I have been really happy Uh, to be able to do the work I do. And the gift has been being able to combine multiple approaches with psychology. I teach at uh, Pepperdine in our graduate school, but I also have a private practice working primarily with victims of violence. And I also uh, conduct research looking at what are the things that help us to heal and what are some of the barriers uh, that can keep us stuck. And so, It has been quite a journey, and I'm so appreciative to have been in the field. I graduated with my doctorate in 2000, so it's been 20 years, and I am still enjoying it. I mean, that is absolutely amazing. Um, I'm always fascinated by 
people who choose the field of psychology because it's so much more intricate and intense than we can ever imagine it as people who are outside of it. You know, when people think psychology, they think, oh, okay, you go to a therapist and that's pretty much where it ends. But there's a lot more to it. What are some of the things that people often misconstrue about the field of psychology? Yes. Well, one of the things that people usually say to me is, you know, wouldn't it be depressing? that they can't imagine, quote unquote, listening to people's problems all day. And for me, it really is inspiring. Mm. Like people are incredible as we, you know, think about all of the challenges that each of us have gone through. And in many cases, if people see you now, see you in your present moment, they would not always guess the story or the journey that has gotten you there. And so um, I am in awe and appreciation of people uh, in in their process. And I'm also honored that people are willing to share uh, their experience and stories with me because we definitely live in a culture that promotes silence Mm. and uh, promotes, you know, pretending that everything Mm. is always great and wonderful and fine. And so to get into a space where people are willing to let down their armor uh, and really be present and, mm. and honest is is really amazing. Um, so one of the myths is that it would just be depressing and hard to hear every day. Now, don't get me wrong. So some people have had experiences um, that are upsetting, but it is more than just hearing the problems. It is journeying with people toward the solution, right? Mm. So you get to see the growth and the process. And uh, that is one of the things I really like about doing the work. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I worked at a, as a crisis counselor. And I will say, you know, working at a rape crisis center, mm. that is a lot more difficult because you don't get to see people walk through it to mm. their healing. You know, you're just with them in the immediate aftermath and meeting them at the hospital and then if they're meeting with the police and that kind of thing um, and it's short term Mm. but when you're able to uh, really walk the process out with people and see them come to the other side Mm. uh, it really is uh, inspiring and and a blessing Mm. that's beautiful now your work uh, is an integration of psychology and art and culture and spirituality, which, you know, might be surprising for some people. Um, what influenced your decision to integrate all of those different uh, forms of therapy? Well, the, the reality is uh, African psychology and uh, Black psychology are holistic, So it is only uh, Western psychology that has uh, trained people to look at the mind as if it is disconnected from the rest of our being. Mm. And when we really look at indigenous approaches to healing, then it's not uh, a false choice between your mind and your spirit. We Mm. are uh, one being. And so it does not make sense to work with someone every week or months or even for years and never talk about their faith 
and have the role their faith has been playing in whatever the challenge or issue is. And so um, uh, black people, um, African people have endorsed a higher level of religiosity and spirituality. So if you have people who are not spiritual or religious creating the therapy model, they will leave out things that are insignificant to them. Hmm. But when you start to uh, have people creating interventions that are for us and by us, then it will be more reflective of the truth, Hmm. uh, which is uh, that our spirituality is a part of our healing. And there is something uh, people refer to now called embodied healing, which is being aware that we hold stress and trauma in our bodies. Mm. And so, you know, the way we can think about that is some people will say, I'm not depressed, but I always get migraines. Mm. Or they'll say, I'm not anxious, but they always get an upset stomach. Mm. Or in our communities, there are so many people with backache and the doctor can't find what's wrong, but it's all this aching in the back. It's the stress. Mm. And so uh, what psychologists are now understanding is our healing is not just about shifting our thinking, but there's also uh, some release that needs to happen in the body. So uh, whether we think about praise dance or walking, moving, some people do yoga and there's something called trauma-informed yoga. So uh, really tuning into what uh, is the story, what is the legacy what is the stress and trauma that you've been carrying in your body? Mm. And so it is uh, physical, it is healing uh, that is on an emotional level, spiritual. Mm. And then another aspect of healing is our culture that when we have been taught that we are less, that we are inferior, that we are insignificant. Uh, in fact, racism uh, is a trauma. It is a form of trauma that leaves people feeling uh, shame about who they are. And so, you know, we understand that culture is medicine, Mm -hmm. that if you come to understand the the beauty, the wisdom, the genius of of who you come from, then it will uh, be restorative, that it is liberating uh, to come home to yourself and coming home to yourself means my authentic self is not just as an individual, but I'm a part of a collective, a culture, a history, a heritage that is rich. And so I can, we need to heal what is called internalized racism. Mm. And internalized racism is when I come to believe the lies I've been told about myself. And so what are the untruths that we have been told about ourselves Uh, as black people, as people of African descent, as women, you know, what are the Mm. untruths that we've been walking around with that have created shame? And so to reclaim and to restore culture uh, is an aspect of healing. And then uh, we also understand, again, from African-centered psychology, the role of the arts, Mm. that when we have not always felt free to tell our stories, The stories are in the music, they're in the drums, they're in the dancing, they're in the visual arts, uh, they're in uh, the storytelling, in the drama. We -hmm. have told the stories. And so being able to use the arts to to heal is uh, fundamental. So that is why I integrate 
art, spirituality, culture, psychology, because we're whole beings. Mm -hmm. And so when people come to be restored, they should not have to leave a part of themselves outside the room. Absolutely. And I think it's such an important, um, you know, uh, way to practice psychology, you know, because so many people, especially now that we're having more and more conversations about mental health and about seeking the services of mental health professionals, that so many black people, young black people are having the same complaint about Firstly, being inundated with with white uh, mental health practitioners who don't understand you, don't understand your perspective, don't understand your history. And so they go in seeking healing, but end up leaving, feeling more traumatized and more isolated because they are, you know, seeing somebody who does not understand their story. That's right. And so it, it starts with at the training level that when mental health professionals are trained to look at people without context and without history and without culture. So there's this cookie cutter approach that says depression is depression. It doesn't matter who's in front of me. If I just treat them all the same, then we can address the depression. Mm -hmm. But it ignores, uh, one, what we think of as intergenerational trauma or historical trauma Mm -hmm. that some of the despair people are carrying did not begin with them, right? Mm -hmm. That it started before them. And also the ways in which we mask um, our depression, that um, we are, you know, we have often been taught that as as a cultural value to look strong. Mm -hmm. And so if a therapist is looking at you and you're holding it all together and they don't understand what they're looking at, then they may say, this person is fine. They don't really need to be here. Um, And, you know, we're kind of greeting them with the church smile. And they're saying, how are you? I'm blessed, right? (laughs) But underneath all of that, uh, we're we're crumbling. Mm -hmm. And so if people aren't tuned into the ways in which we may show our despair, uh, some people show their depression with what's called irritable depression. Mm -hmm. So instead of looking sad, it looks like a bad attitude, right? Mm -hmm. And that's often the stereotype of black women having a bad attitude. But if you really uh, look underneath the surface to say, what is it uh, that is at the core is often despair. But if people aren't looking through the eyes of compassion, uh, they can miss that. Mm -hmm. My goodness, I'm literally just listening to you going, oh. Wait. <laughs> that right? sounds familiar. It makes sense, right? <laughs> because because culturally, you know, we're told if you sit there crying in front of people, then people will label that as weak. Mm. But if you just go in, you know, going off, we would say going off on people, mm. or, you know, you come in like kind of fiery, then people see that as strength. And then they can miss what's really underneath that of why is it that you're arguing with everybody all mm. the time? Why is it that, you know, everybody is always on your last nerve, mm. right? It, it's because there's there's more going on beneath the surface. Oh, my goodness. So marginalized groups, and I want to specifically focus on black communities um, on this one. 
Marginalized groups are faced with immense and continuous race-based aggressions, and you alluded to this earlier. We deal with compounded traumas and, of course, a mistrust of the system and the people who represent it. How do we navigate that? How do we not lose ourselves or be drowned by the feelings of hopelessness? Because it can get so heavy when you're facing this at every turn. Right. It is uh, draining and exhausting that not only does it exist, but then the denial. Yes. You know, that part is really what we would, um, you know, talk about that, that psychological warfare Mm. for me to mistreat you, not just as an individual. And that's the part people Mm. don't get is that it is systemic and institutionalized Mm. because if it was as if it was only individuals not liking me, then like I could get over it, Mm. right? If you just say, oh, the people down the street don't like you. Okay, ignore it. Mm. But racism is when that is combined with power. So it is not only that you don't like me, but that you are in a position financially or politically uh, or employment-wise to impact my life, Mm. right? Um, And so, and then after you close the doors of uh, resource and access, Uh, to turn around and say, but everything is fair. So the problem is just you all don't work hard enough. Mm. You're just not trying. So it's it's an ultimate uh, mind game, right? A manipulation Mm. uh, to close the door and then pretend the door is not closed. Or what people will do is point to a few success stories, Mm. right? And say, well, just be like them. Mm. And if you're like them, then there's not a problem. Um, When you see by and large, uh, the, the large number of, of people who are suffering, and it is not a matter of low, uh, laziness. It is not a matter of being unintelligent, uh, that we are genius, we are hard workers, but there are uh, continued barriers uh, to the access of uh, education, of income, of home loans, of all of these various media representation and opportunity and so uh, this is a reality. So a part of how we deal with it is uh, an acknowledgement that it is. Mm. Because when we believe the denial, then we can start to think, oh, it just must be something wrong with us, mm. right? Because we're not seeing what the, the real issue is. And so uh, it is also important, one, uh, to have uh, compassion toward ourselves and each other, as we recognize the truth of the continued reality of racism, that we are not uh, post-racial, but mm-hmm. it is it is still a reality. Um, but then it also is about uh, teaching our children, and for those who never learned it as children, teaching adults uh, the truth about their history, their contribution, and their culture. Mm-hmm. Because if the only thing you know about yourself is oppression, then that will define you, mm-hmm. right? And so instead, if we, you know, if we are intentional in our parenting, in our mentorship, in uh, our education system, to to really be thoughtful about presenting uh, the truth, you know, when mm-hmm. we say, who are the great scientists? Who are the great inventors? Who are the great writers? And we need to make sure we're on the that we're on that list, mm. right? So that people are growing up seeing these are the great minds, right? These are the great artists, and they are a reflection of you. Mm. And so uh, teaching that is important. 
And then we want to be mindful to to look uh, for the good, as you were saying, when we are bombarded with, you know, all of the difficulty. And it's important that we see that. Um, but when we are able uh, to make an impact, uh, to have any uh, area of progress, or to have allies who are uh, working for racial justice and equity, um, to really be able to see that and celebrate it. Some people, you know, um, if you celebrate it, will get mad because they'll say, oh, but we still have so much more to do. Yeah. But if yeah. you can never celebrate anything, uh, you will be in a perpetual state of despair. Mm. So I see the work and I see the wins, right? I see the work we need to do mm. and I can still see the wins. Uh, and then I will say from a spiritual standpoint, you know, uh, uh, a major movements in the world have often come out of people with great faith mm. because it takes faith to see what has not yet manifested, mm. right? And then to work toward that. And so this radical hope that is not based on what I can see in the natural, but what I believe must be. Mm. And so nourishing um, my spirit is important and then getting around people who get it. Right. Because these conversations with people who are in denial are draining. It is exhausting and draining. It's one thing if someone is just ignorant, but they are curious, then, you know, we can share information. But some people are committed to denial. And so you will exhaust yourself trying to convince them a tree is a tree. And so to conserve your energy and spend time in the presence of people uh, who are uh, restoring, who are uh, truth tellers, who see you, mm. who see you and where you don't have to always be on, mm. um, but that you can say, you know, that I'm tired or I'm frustrated or whatever it is I'm feeling where there can be truth uh, so that we can refill our well mm. and continue in the work mm. absolutely and you know i'm finding that a lot more this year um you know we i mean particularly with social media we've gotten as you mentioned so used to acting like everything is sunshine and roses you know yeah. and and i think particularly this year with everything that's been going on i certainly have found myself in a space where I have grown more comfortable with being vulnerable about what I'm actually feeling, being yes. okay with posting something on Instagram and saying, actually, I'm having a hard time and this is what I'm yeah. struggling with, you know, um, and that things are not feeling okay right now and being okay right. with saying that. Yes, it's so important. That honors our humanity. Mm. You see, if we have to always pretend to be unfazed, unbothered, uh, still. If we have to always uh, pretend to be super strong and superheroes, it robs us of our humanity. Mm. And as a human being, some things hurt, mm. right? Uh, as a human being, we get tired. Mm. As, uh, as a human being, uh, there are some things that are distressing, that are stressful, that are, um, that are depressing. Mm. And so... Uh, to be human is to give myself permission to experience the full range of emotions. Mm. 
that I don't just have to. And I think this is important education as well for those from spiritual traditions, because often uh, we get pressured to always say, you know, how are you? I'm blessed. Yes. I'm blessed and highly favored. Right? <laughs> and the truth is you can have blessings and still have worries, mm. but you can have blessings and still be grieving. And so we want to give people space and permission and to give ourselves permission, as you did, to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. And and telling the truth is liberating and it's contagious because when I start to admit the truth about how I really feel, it frees up other people to be Mm -hmm. more honest. Mm, Absolutely. And, you know, it actually brings up the this whole idea of toxic positivity for me, you know, like, you know, you cast away all of your negative thoughts just move them to the side you know you've got to only focus on the good stuff only focus on what's positive and so even when you know you try to have authentic conversations people are just like nope i will not even look at that i'm just gonna park it somewhere and pretend it does not exist and i always i'm just like i don't know how you live because at some point you're going to be forced to confront everything that you're trying to run away from. Yes, it um, is problematic on multiple levels. One is it takes away our compassion. Mm. And what I mean by that is, you know, uh, I was talking to someone um, and they were sharing that they told a friend they were having a hard time because they were grieving a loss. And the friend's response was, well, you should be grateful for the good things in your life. Mm. You know, in that moment, she said, I just kind of shut down. I knew I couldn't talk to her anymore. Mm. And so when we respond like that, not only to ourselves, but to each other, when people go silent, it's not because they feel better. It's just they're clear that you're not really emotionally available. Mm. And so what it really communicates is an emotional fragility Mm. that I am so fragile that I can't sit with the tears, that I'm so afraid of it that it's like I can't even take it in because it is a fear of being overwhelmed. And some people have said that, like, I'm afraid if I really look at some stuff that I might not be able to get up. Right. Mm. So some of us cope by staying busy, by staying distracted you know, and uh, spirituality uh, in its authentic manifestation is about authentic healing, not stuffing and denial and distraction, right? That Mm -hmm. when I have really been made whole, I can actually tell the story because I'm on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. But if I can't even look at it, then then I am not healed, Mm -hmm. right? I am tiptoeing around it because I fear at any moment that I will come crashing down. Mm -hmm. And so we want to uh, adopt a positivity or a spirituality Mm -hmm. uh, that is truthful, right? So the truth will set us free. And if I am living a lie Mm -hmm. uh, to myself and toward others, then that is not freedom, you know, and it's not authentic. Uh, And so we want to really examine um, our uh, hesitation Mm. to deal with reality. Because here's the other part is when I am unwilling to look at it, that also means I'm unwilling to do something about it. 
Mm. And there are people that are around us who are being harmed, you know, but while we are silent, while we are disconnected, while we are just focusing on gratitude, there are people who are suffering. And so to say, I do not want to hear how your life is being turned upside down. Mm. That's not a spiritual decision. That's, that's a very cold, uh, that's a very cold hearted decision. Mm. Uh, but it is fundamentally, I understand, based in fear. Mm. And so to develop the capacity to actually see, to actually hear, mm. to actually heal, to actually show up, that's, that is the aim. Mm. That is what we want. Mm. Now, we all go through hardships and challenges. It's just part of life. And we yes. all know how painful it can be when you're faced with, you know, all of these various hardships, especially when it just feels like it's one thing after the other and you just can't seem to come up for air. But why is it so hard for us to establish community with each other? Why is there so much shame attached to hardship? Yes. So an important piece is the distinction between shame and guilt. Mm. So we feel guilty about a behavior. We feel shame for who we are. Mm. So if I do something wrong, like I I, um, lied on you or I gossiped about you or I took some money from you, if I feel guilty, then perhaps like the behavior I did was wrong and I could feel guilty about the behavior and then make a decision. I'm not going to do that anymore. Mm. Right. And so it is fixable to, mm. you know, stop acting like that. Mm. But when we experience shame, it is that at my core, I feel like something is wrong with me. Mm. That at my core, I believe I am unlovable or that I am unworthy. At my core, I feel rotten or tainted. Mm. And so that. Um, it is an area that we need to heal um, our sense of who we are. Mm. And that's why uh, psychologists will tell parents, you know, you want to be really mindful about not just labeling children as bad, Mm. right? The behavior is bad, Mm. right? So this kid may be misbehaving, but if I continue to speak over this child, you are bad. You, mm. right? That's you at your essence, mm. at your core, at your identity. Uh, then we're we're putting people in a box that is very hard to come out of, mm. right? And so uh, that is uh, the challenge. The, the other piece is uh, I think a lot of times shame is built on the misbelief that good things happen to good people mm. and bad things happen to bad people. So if something bad happened to you, you must have deserved it. Mm. And that's how a lot of people think, right? So whether they think like you did something to deserve it in the natural or you did something to deserve it in the spiritual, mm. but whatever bad happened to you, you brought it upon yourself. So when people have that um, that that myth, that misperception, then that's where the shame comes in, right? Mm. So, you know, you have a a woman who's in an abusive relationship and instead of responding to her with compassion, people will say, "Mm, what'd you do? Or why were you stupid enough to stay? Or why did you, you might, you teach people how to treat you. you So it becomes all your fault. Classic narrative. (laughs) 
Yes, that's, that is a story, right? And if someone says, I was sexually assaulted, well, why did you go over there? Mm-hmm. And what were you wearing? Mm-hmm. And why did you have something to drink? So it becomes, it's all uh, anything bad that happened. You know, you're, uh, someone robbed you. Why did you have such a fancy watch? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It's like, mm-hmm. you know, this, this desire to, uh, to make meaning or to make attribution or the illusion of control. And the reality is there are some things that happen happen to us that are beyond us. Mm. And it requires putting the accountability on the people who actually did the behavior. Yeah. So some people are carrying shame about what other people did yeah. to them. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I've, um, I've often heard people speaking about i mean you know people speak openly about relationships whether it's with your group of friends or your family or even on social media and obviously relationships end at some point or people do us wrong or we we do people wrong you know it's (laughs) it happens um but a lot of people speak about uh you know either wanting closure so i can't end this relationship until i have closure from this person or this person has ghosted me and i really need to speak to them so that i have closure on the flip side you have people who seek revenge before moving on from a situation like i'm not letting this go until he feels my pain (laughs) how um or, or or even thinking well it's fine, karma will deal with them and then I will be okay, you know? How does this actually impact on us and why are these ideas so important to us? Yes, so meaning-making is important. We we want things to make sense. Mm. We want to find the reason. And uh, the reality is when some people have... uh, mistreated you or uh, broken up with you or cheated on you Um, in most cases I'm going to say really in almost every case there is nothing they could say that will make it oh okay got it thank you for explaining that to me well now that you put it that way (laughs) right of like you know we want to understand why you know but why me or why did you do this to me and you know we and and often it, it really wasn't even that deep it wasn't that thought out you know it could be selfishness boredom something new and exciting came along whatever whatever it is um but what i uh say to clients and to friends is we never want to put our healing in someone else's hands mm-hmm. meaning if I say I will not be able to heal until you explain it to me, mm. or I will not be able to heal until you apologize, mm. then I'm on hold. Mm. Then I'm on hold waiting for someone to give me something that they may never give me. Mm. And even if they gave it to me, it would not fill the hole in my soul. Mm. And so I take um, my power back by first. And, and I will say for some people, if there is something you need to say, right, that you did not get a chance to say, and you can say it to the person, you can say it. And, and that is, um, you know, I'll say if it's emotionally and physically safe to have such a communication or confrontation, um, that is fine. But when people are debating about, you know, confrontation, 
I, you know, I tell them you, you want to be prepared for all the different responses. And if it does not matter to you ultimately how they respond, but you just want to say your piece, mm-hmm. then go for it. But if you are going to say something with the need for them to admit it and say sorry, and then if they don't do that, you're going to be more, even more devastated, then that's a setup for disappointment mm. and frustration, mm. right? So if there's something you need to say, you can speak it, say like this was wrong and, you know, this is the impact it had on my life and, you know, whatever it is you want to say. Mm. Um, but in terms of holding yourself up, waiting for someone to make meaning of what has happened, mm. um, it is it's a time robber and it also gives that person extended power over your life Mm. and so it is painful it is hard and I think you do need to take time to grieve Mm. if you're angry that you know that is understandable I always say you know if I am outraged about outrageous things that's a healthy response Mm. some things are outrageous Mm. right so I don't have to be neutral about it yes it is very upsetting Um, And so to give yourself space and time to feel that and to heal, but not to wait for someone else to give you your healing. Mm. Yes, absolutely. I love that. One of the conversations that I've, I've had recently, particularly with friends, is about how grief is one of the sneakiest emotions I have ever experienced. What is it that makes it so multi-layered and unpredictable? Yeah, it is the power of memory. Mm. You know, the, the, the mind, you know, we have all these associations. But some people call them triggers. Some people call them awakenings. And so there are some things we can um, be cognizant, we can be aware of. So, for example, you may say, oh, you know, uh, the person who died, their birthday is coming, mm. right? Or Christmas is coming or, you know, the day that they died is coming. So that, you know, then we are clear about those associations and we'll say like, oh, okay, I have to prepare myself or what do I want to do on that day? Mm. But then there are things that can sneak up on us, um, like something good happening and wanting to call and tell them mm. and realizing you can't. Or a scent, somebody walking past with their perfume on. Mm. Like, you know, you couldn't see that coming. Um, Or you're watching a movie and there's, you know, a mother-daughter scene or a father-daughter scene and uh, and then you're you're done. Mm. Um, And so they, or, you know, sometimes it's not even an outward uh, trigger, Mm. but just an inner longing, right? Mm. Um, I was talking to a dear friend whose uh, son was killed and she just was, I just want my son, mm. right? I just want my son, right? Is, is where, where she is. And, you know, there can be good days and then sometimes she may have fun or engage with her other children, but you know, then it's going to come back around of, you know, I still want my son, mm. you know? So uh, memory is powerful, but also I'm going to say, you know, a grief is also about loving, you know, that we love people so deeply and, um, you know, and, and the unfairness of it all, right. Mm. Of, 
uh, some people time, you know, being short from our perspective, Mm -hmm. um, it is really difficult. And, and the other part I will say is each of us is so unique that we're, uh, we're not replaceable. Mm. Right. Cause as I was mentioning, my friend who has other children, right. And they, and she loves them, but that's not her son. Yeah. Right. So there, yeah, there is a special role and place that people occupy in our lives. But one of the things that I do try to encourage people with around grief is, you know, what this person who loved me would want for me, because sometimes people feel in order to give proper tribute to the person, they cannot enjoy their lives. Mm. So it becomes to, I have to constantly uh, embody that I care, that I love them, that I miss them. So then, you know, you can feel guilty if you're having a good day or Mm. that you went whatever amount of time and your mind wasn't there. Mm. And so then it can like be like, oh, like I gotta, I gotta hold on to that. And then even maybe even getting resentful if you see other people kind of going forward, right? Mm. Or not talking about the person so much. Um, And so, you know, I, I think about us letting our tribute to that person be a living tribute instead of a dying tribute, mm-hmm. right? That I don't have to give up on life to prove to you, to show you how much you meant to me, but instead I want to live it and in that way show you how much you meant to me. Mm. That is such a beautiful perspective. Mm. Now, you, um, you integrate culture in your work as we've discussed, you know, in order to help people heal holistically. One of the things that we struggle with, and particularly within black culture, is the stigmatization of, you know, things that are actually harmful uh, to us. Mental health is often a stigma, you know, um, not having, you know, uh, healthy finances is a stigma. So being broke is looked down upon. Uh, social class is an issue or struggling to find a job is an issue that people are often punished for within their culture, within their families, they look down upon, which actually just makes things worse. How can we begin to shift those stigmas um, and be able to actually separate people from things and see people as people? Yes. So, you know, a part of what shifts stigma is truth telling, Mm. you know, what allows stigma to persist um, is silence, because in the silence, assumptions are believed and confirmed and passed down. Right. Mm. But when you have uh, people who are courageous enough to speak truth, Mm. um, then it, it, it chips away the stigma. So, you know, the example I'm thinking of is. Uh, my former pastor, um, when she got up in the pulpit preaching a sermon and talked about being in therapy mm-hmm. and people couldn't believe it. Right? <laughs> so she was like, yes, I had to go get some therapy. And so it uh, it startled people, but then it freed people up. Like if she can go, you know, like and we respect her, mm-hmm. then like maybe it's OK if we go. Right. And so uh, being willing to be a truth teller can help to uh, chip away at stigma. 
you know, around the finance piece. I think many people pretend to have more than they have, Mm. you know, and when we are struggling, you know, we keep it a secret. Mm. And so um, that adds to the uh, stigma. We have, um, uh, uh, I don't know if you all have it in the markets there, in the supermarket here, in the front of the supermarket, there's a place where you can like pour your, your coins in, I think it's called Coinstar. You can pour pour your coins in and then it will give you um, a receipt. You take it to the cashier and they'll give you like dollar bills for it. Mm. You all have that? No, we don't. Uh, Okay. So, you know, if you're broke, you can go in your car, go in your pockets, you find all the coins you have. And then it turns out, you know, you have enough to maybe get some groceries, but it was just spread, you know, spread out in all these coins. Mm. So I was uh, d- teaching a women's a women's group, and I, you know, mentioned Coinstar. You mentioned th- this machine, and the women were shocked. They're saying, "Doctor Tama, <laughs> how do you know about Coinstar?" <laughs> so let's talk about like what it was, you know, like being a poor graduate student, right? I went straight through school, so I didn't, you know, I hadn't like worked and uh, saved up all this money. I just said, let me just keep going uh, with school. And so, you know, it was funny because not until, because it wasn't a, a big decision to me to tell the story. I was just talking, mm. but then realizing by their response, like people's assumption you know, that you have always had or that you, you know, can't relate or that you don't know anything else is in part because of our silence. Mm-hmm. So as we start to, you know, speak up more and and tell the truth more, um, it will uh, push back against mm-hmm. these assumptions. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that so many people struggle with is putting in place boundaries Self-care has been one of the terms that has been flying around throughout this year. <laughs> you know, everybody's team self-care. Um, <laughs> but when you actually get down to it, so many people don't have boundaries, which are an important part of self-care. Um, how can we develop healthy boundaries and also manage the guilt that enforcing <laughs> boundaries can sometimes create for us? Yes. So uh, to release the guilt from setting boundaries and boundaries are like saying no, Mm. right? Of Not always giving people free access to you, not giving all of yourself away. Mm. And I think the key really is for people to remember moderation. Mm. Um, Because if we think about moderation, we can push back against this idea that either you give away everything or you're selfish. Mm. Right. Because when that idea gets promoted, it's like, well, I don't want people to think I'm selfish so I can never Mm. say no. Right. I have to say yes to everything at all times and all places and every request. Um, But there is a middle ground, right? Mm. There's a difference between uh, being selfish and uh, actually harming yourself because you're not doing you're not protecting your own mental health. Mm. Uh, some people are not protecting their own finances. Mm. And so we can idealize um, people who are willing to do whatever for everyone. But then when we look closely, uh, often those people are not doing well. And when they are struggling, often they discover nobody is there for them. Mm. 
So I really like to say for those who have been like the strong one in your family, the strong one in your friendship circle, the strong one at your job or at your church, to really be intentional in this season Mm -hmm. of developing mutual relationships. And that's, you know, part of the pushback um, with self-care is people will say, you know, we also really need community care Mm -hmm. or mutual care. Um, so that it's not just every person on their own, but what is the what is the healthiness of my relationships? And if all of my relationships are about me taking care of everyone, but there's no one I can lean on, mm. then instead of just being mad at people, then I have to set a, get a goal for myself of I want to start being more transparent mm. in my relationships. I want to be more honest. I want to be willing to ask for help. Uh, so that it can be uh, more mutual. Mm-hmm. And when I have an authentic friend, they might be disappointed if I say no, but it's not going to end the friendship. Mm-hmm. You know, when I have a real friend and they're like, oh, please come and go with me. And I say, I'm exhausted. It's been a long week. I just really can't. Mm-hmm. They may be disappointed, but they're not going to be like, you're not my friend and yeah. you're <laughs> you're, you know, it's like, okay, we'll see you later. So these are the kind of uh, people that you want in your life, not uh, those who are controlling where if you ever set a boundary or say no to something, you know, if my no will destroy the relationship, Mm -hmm. then this is not an equal relationship. It's more uh, an obligation or a hostage, right? Or Mm -hmm. uh, being victimized. Because there's no, they can, you know, if the other person can be honest about what they feel and think and want, and I can't be honest about what I feel, think and want, Mm. then something is wrong. Mm. Absolutely. Now, there's been so much happening this year. I know I, for one, feel like I don't know if I'm coming or going a lot of the time. In addition to, you know, the normal ups and downs of life, we've been faced with a pandemic, which is showing no signs of slowing down. We have been subjected to an increase in the visibility of racial violence and trauma. We have witnessed a resistance to justice at a structural level. You know, there's widening inequalities um, gender-based violence and so in South Africa particularly it is rife you know South Africa has one of the highest rates of gender-based violence in the world you know the list is so incredibly long there are hashtags all over social media there is an awareness that needs to be brought to so many issues you know there's this emphasis on being hyper alert and amplifying social justices in the pursuit of justice and it's overwhelming because you know i've often had moments where i feel like i need to i need to retweet and share about black lives matter i need to retweet and share about what's happening in nigeria with nsars this you know gender-based violence issues here and then there's also my work which focuses on injustices in the workplace that are related to racism and all sorts of discrimination but also i'm tired (laughs) it's a lot i need a break (laughs) i need to get away from it all but also i feel guilty for because you know there's all of these conflicts that are existing how do we navigate this yes so uh in the fight for justice we have to really take on the understanding the frame that this is a marathon Mm. 
it's not a sprint, right? If it was a sprint, like if we just needed people to do something for three more months and we'll all be liberated, then I would say, forget your naps, forget your pedicure, like let's knock it out. But, you know, this is a, this is a lifetime work. And those who came before us worked a lifetime. And so to be able to do this work in the long haul, it, then we have to look at sustainability. Mm. And it is unsustainable to drown ourselves daily mm. in black death, in black torture, in uh, poverty, in sexual assault. It is it is unsustainable for me to consume that 24 hours a day, mm. every day for the rest of my life, mm. right? And so in order to engage in the work, then I have to stop at those filling stations, you know, they're on a marathon, they can get some water, <laughs> you know, mm. I have to, um, I have to recognize that not only am I working for other people's wellness, but that my wellness actually matters. Mm. And so it becomes a broader understanding of resistance. Mm. And so resistance is not just about hosting and marching uh, because we are taught that as uh, black women, as women of African descent, uh, that we are not worthy of care. Mm. If I lay down and take a nap, my rest is my resistance mm. because we are often told that we, we have to always be strong. Then my, my tenderness, my love, my vulnerability, even my tears are an act of resistance. Mm. And so uh, not only that, because, you know, racism and sexism are meant to uh, intentionally dishonor us. And so uh, black joy is an act of resistance. So I love, like, if I'm somewhere and, you know, black people like to laugh real loud <laughs> and I see a table full of black people falling out laughing, oh, that's good. That's good. In the midst of all of this, right, in the midst of all of it, for us to have laughter and, and dancing mm. and music and fashion, mm. it's an act of resistance. It's, it is radical and revolutionary to say we are despised and yet we love ourselves enough to breathe and dance and rest and eat mm -hmm. and do nothing at all right mm -hmm. and then that restores us to be able to do the next uh, leg of the journey mm -hmm. absolutely now as someone whose work is focused on being in service of others how do you replenish yourself? Yes, it's so important. So a, a number of things are replenishing for me. You know, one is taking days off. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, something we really have to do as adults. When you're a kid, then other people tell you when it's your vacation, right? Yeah. They're like, school's closed, you're on vacation. But as an adult, unless you have an amazing supervisor, most people are not going to be told, oh, you look a little tired. You should take some time off. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like you have to uh, adult yourself. We call it reparenting. I have to be my own parent to say, oh, you know, I need and, and don't wait until I break down mm. before I take a break. Mm. Right. But to schedule it, to put the time in 
of, you know, I need some time of not doing anything. Um, another thing that is replenishing for me um, are my friendship circles. So that's why I was saying being mindful about the relationships mm. that you uh, develop so that it's not uh, warfare, drama, draining. Mm. I, don't, I, I can't do it. <laughs> I can't do it. So to have some real, real, real good friends where you can enjoy each other and where the conversation uh, refuels you mm. and it just feels good to be in their presence. Uh, my spiritual practices uh, replenish me. So, you know, every morning doing my devotions. So when I show up to mm. teach or to provide counseling, I'm coming with a full cup, mm. right? I'm not uh, starting the work day empty. So mm. I have to pour into myself uh, with reading or music or prayer or meditation. Uh, so I have something to give. And then the last one I'll mention is dancing. I love to dance. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, uh, moving my body, dancing, it, it is, it brings me joy and allows me to, to do what I do. Mm. This has been such um I don't even know if I have the word right now to explain how this conversation has felt for me. It's been so healing. I've honestly felt like I'm having a conversation with my best friend, but also just sitting and have a conversation with my therapist. Yes. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm so glad. I have enjoyed talking to you and I love the questions. Each of them is so important and relevant for where we are. Uh, so thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Dr. Taman. Thank you for the work that you're doing and the way in which you're positively impacting on so many lives through what you share on your social media platforms. So for, Thank you so much. For people who would love to connect with you, who may not already be following you, where can they find you online? Yes, yeah, so it's uh, Dr. Tama, D-R-T-H-E-M-A dot com is the website. And on Twitter, I'm Dr. Tama. And on Instagram, it's Dr. Dr. Tama. Uh, and the most important thing you all can do is to follow uh, my podcast. It's called The Homecoming Podcast. And it's on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And I uh, am glad to say that you all are my, say, my fourth biggest audience and so i was so grateful when <laughs> awesome. they uh list uh the countries of where your listeners are mm. so thank you all for listening and definitely spread the word oh that's amazing thank you so so much dr tamar <laughs> thank you take care bye and thank you for joining us for another episode of the workplace revolution with me sisle bolani this is our last episode for this season, so we will see you again in a few weeks when we're refreshed and ready to kick off 2021. Wishing you and your loved ones a safe holiday season, and we look forward to connecting with you again when we're back with season two.